All right, I think we'll have some handouts coming out your way. And if you have your Bibles with you, if you'll turn to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23. Last time when we ended up, um, uh, we saw uh, where, where Jesus had breathed his last um, and committed his spirit unto the Father. Um, and so he was he was dead. He was dead on the cross. Um, and so that's where Luke chapter 23 picks up. I'm going to go ahead and start reading for us. Um, that I think it's also printed there on your handout. Um, but I'm going to read for starting in verse 50 of Luke 23. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council and a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. He was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was a day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these seemed to them as an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that we have what happened here written down in our language that we can read together are so many mercies of yours wrapped into this. Thank you. Thank you for that. Father, we um, thank you for the truths represented here. These are big. They are uh, beyond life-changing. Uh, Father, and uh, it, it's it's hard for us at times to grasp the seriousness of these things. And so, Father, I just pray that your spirit will do that. I pray that he will help us to see that, that you are the one that opens eyes. You are the one uh, that gives life. And, Father, we would uh, uh, grapple with the amazing truth that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died 
and that he has risen and that in that there is all of our hope for everything. Father, I pray that your spirit, he will do his work through his word for your people. We ask this. Amen. All right. Well, first, we're going to dive right into our first point there. Um, the absurdity of the God-man corpse. Um, we're going to start there in verse 52. So it says there in verse 52, this man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The weight of this is huge, of this verse. Anytime a story begins by telling us of the presence of a dead, murdered body, the mood gets serious and dark in a hurry. While the presence of any murdered body raises major questions, the presence of the murdered body of Jesus for the book of Luke, that's a quite alarming moment in the book. Jesus is the central character. No one else comes close in all of Luke. And now we're talking about his dead body? Add to this that Luke has intentionally presented Jesus as the promised one of God. He is, according to Luke, the Messiah, the one promised across all of the scripture, starting in Genesis 3 forward. So as we consider this dead body, this dead body of Jesus, the central character of all the scriptures, hopefully the heaviness of the verse sets in. But things get stranger as we're left with a perplexing question. How in the world did this happen? As Bible students, we are very perplexed. The question of how did this happen isn't a foreign question at the scene of a murder. <laughs> but it's odd when we know exactly how the murder was perpetrated. For here we know the one who carried out the murder. We know the ones who planned the murder. We know the ones who encouraged the murder. We know the ones who gave the order for the murder. We know the motive of the murder. We know the opportunity they had for the murder. And we have the murder weapon. And yet as Bible students, I'm suggesting we should be deeply perplexed, vexed to ask the question, how in the world could this have happened? So the Bible does not present Jesus as simply the central figure, even as merely the promised one of God. That's why this question should be vexing. But as the demoniac of Luke 4 said so clearly, while he is man, he is also simultaneously the Holy One of God. So here we have in the dead body of Jesus, the dead body of the God-man. Herein lies the murdered body of God. Friedrich Nietzsche was a very capable and quite godless German philosopher and probably one of the most famous passages out of his work, The Joyful Wisdom. He offers this scene. Have you not heard of the madman who lit a lantern in the bright morning hours, ran to the marketplace and cried incessantly, I seek God. I seek God. As many of those who did not believe in God standing around just then, they began to laugh. Has God gotten lost? 
Ask one. Did he lose his way like a child? Ask another. Or maybe he's hiding. Is he afraid of us? Is he gone on a, vo on a voyage? Maybe he immigrated. They yelled and they laughed. The madman jumped into their midst. He pierced them with his eyes. And he said, where is God? He cried, I will tell you, we have killed him. You and I, all of us are his murderers. But how did we do this? How did we drink up the sea? Who gave us the sponge to wipe away the entire horizon? What were we doing when we unchained this earth from the sun? How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. What was the holiest and the mightiest of all that the world had yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe his blood off us? Now I am almost certain that Friedrich Nietzsche did not have Luke 23 in mind as he penned the passage. But I think the astonishment that he describes perfectly fits the occasion. The idea of the God-man dying on its own is illogical, for God cannot die. So either his body was not, so either his body was not a dead body or that was not the body of God. But now wait, the Christian creeds clearly say that his body was a dead body and he was God. And so we return to the question, how? How could this have happened? Let me remind you, the Bible never sees death as natural. According to the scriptures, human death is a perversion, a deep perversion to the created order. It was introduced as the just consequence of human sin. In Genesis 3, Paul in Romans 5 sums it up by telling us that death entered our world when sin entered our world. To die is not to be human. In the biblical worldview, to die is to be diagnosed. A person's dead body is the clearest, most public statement that he or she was guilty of treason against God and fully deserving judgment. And so we have the absurdity of the God-man corpse. If death is a diagnosis of guilt, then how can God face death? How can God be treasonous against God? How can God ever be guilty of sin? If you're still with me, I'm telling you, in here lies the beauty of the Christian gospel. The body of Jesus, the dead body of Jesus, it is stark, sweet evidence that Jesus, the Son of God, was treated as guilty of sin. The body of Jesus is the verdict of the divine court. How is that good news? Because 
It means that God the Father allowed Jesus, who committed no sin, standing to be treated as though he was guilty of sin. It means the dead body of Jesus is clear evidence that the God-man owned our sin. Friend, Jesus was found guilty not because he ever sinned or fell short, but because upon him was laid our sin. Like Jacob stood before Isaac wearing the garments of Esau, Jesus walked in before the Father wearing our sins. And whereas Jacob left robbing Esau of his blessing, Jesus left securing our blessing. And hence, we can have the crazy notion of the dead body of the God-man. Let me pause here and ask you, as you think about death and what Christians think about death, have we considered how quick life goes? The Bible already tells us that every one of us has been diagnosed and therefore death will just be the moment of public declaration of our sinfulness. What makes us think we will ever cheat death? No amount of healthy living will keep us from death. And death is a visible reminder of the coming judgment. Hebrews 9 tells us that after death comes judgment. So just like no amount of healthy living can help us survive death, no amount of holy living will enable us to survive judgment. How can we be ready for death and judgment? I submit to you, consider Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, praise God for verse 28. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those, listen to this language, who are eagerly waiting for. Those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus will be saved from judgment. Just keep that in mind. Those who are eagerly awaiting. It's a good way to transition to the next point. Point 2A. If this numbering system I've come up with for this outline, if, if you understand it at the end of this, then uh, good for you, because I think I'm confused myself. All right. So 2A, the power of God to create faith and obedience. Verse 50 through 52. Now, there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. It sounds a lot like eagerly waiting, doesn't it? This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So right now, things couldn't look any worse for Jesus. He's dead. His followers and his friends, they've abandoned him. And yet, in the starkest of circumstances, there's great cause for optimism, according to the promises of Scripture. One reason... For cause for optimism, optimism are the very words of Jesus himself. He predicted his death and his resurrection. The angel 
will remind the women of that in just a little while. In Luke 9, Jesus said right here at the climax of the epistle, where, where uh, I mean, epistle of, of the gospel, where Paul, uh, Peter, I just want to follow his epistles today, where Peter uh, confesses Jesus as Christ. Jesus says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. We have cause for optimism because Jesus has already told us he will get up after three days. Another reason for optimism is the biblical theme of a remnant. Across the pages of scripture, we get the picture of God saving a leftover people, a remnant. When judgment falls and all seems lost, time and time again, we see a remnant raised up. Now, if you want more information on the remnant and, and how it comes across the, uh, the, uh, the Bible there, in one of the, I think the first appendix I gave you, just some different texts you can go back and consider. But the key here is if ever there is a need for a remnant, it would now be when the lifeless corpse of the God-man hangs humiliated and exposed on a cross of shame. Now is the time for a remnant. And keep that in mind, because another reason for hope in the midst of this horrifying scene is found some seven centuries later, earlier in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah 53, verse 9, Isaiah prophesies of the suffering servant, and he says this, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. So here we are told that Jesus would have a grave set with the wicked. And as Jesus' body hangs dead and abandoned there at Calvary, it is set to be thrown in a grave with the wicked, just like Isaiah 53 predicts. But the same verse says that's actually not going to happen. We are told that he will be buried with the rich. So he is set for his grave with the wicked. And here is where we get our remnant and a rich remnant at that. Verse 50, now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man. So Joseph is one of the 70 members of the Sanhedrin, the council. Yeah, this is the same council that just hours before in Luke 22 had Jesus arrested, brought him before him, humiliated him, said dreadful things to him, beat him, scoffed at him, and made sure to secure his execution. Joseph is a member. There's only 70, and Joseph is one of them. Hidden within this crew, we get the rich remnant that God has waiting for this moment. Luke beautifully describes it. He was a member of the council, a good and a righteous man. He had not consented to their decision. He didn't like what they had done. And he was looking for the kingdom of God hidden right there among the murderous false prophets. God has one of his own brothers and sisters. God has power to create faith and obedience. And this point is highlighted by the fact that prior to this incident, you know how many times we've heard of Joseph of Arimathea? Never he goes from completely unheard of to covered by every single one of the gospel writers. Mark covers him in, uh, in Mark 15, John and John 19, Matthew and Matthew 27, and Luke uh, and Luke 23. 
And so as Jesus's body is exposed and abandoned, his followers who have spent day in and day out with him, where are they? Folks, they're nowhere to be found. And yet God raises up a believer from the epicenter of those who hated Jesus. Folks, this is a microcosm story of church history. Over and over, God creates faith and obedience to accomplish his perfect providence. Can we find encouragement in this? The church will not stop because our culture feels like it's going crazy. God is not dependent upon a church or a denomination or a pastor. Should the faith to accomplish the purposes of God seemingly be absent, he can and he will create ex nihilio out of nowhere, even out of the darkest places where the name of Jesus is hated, he will create faith. Jesus said it best on his way into the city just a few days prior, I can make even the rocks cry out. Joseph of Arimathea is a rock shouting. Third point, the privilege of serving the body of Christ, verse 52 through 53. This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus and then he took it down and he wrapped it in a linen shroud and he laid it in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. Mark tells us in his account of this in Mark 15 of the courage of Joseph. Joseph went to Pilate. There is no way that he goes to Pilate without the other members of the council finding out. Oh, there they all know. Further, Pilate was no fan of the council or its members. And unless you think that Joseph was a man of just real deep courage to pull this off by nature, bear in mind John's account in John 19 when he tells us that Joseph had secretly followed Jesus. Why? Because he was afraid of the Jews. So how do we get a man of courage from nowhere? Again, God creates faith and he shows mercy to his children to allow us to serve them. And what a picture we have in verse 53, Joseph removing the body of Jesus from the cross. This is the man who removed the nails. This is the man who lifts him off the cross. This is the man who transports him to the grave. The common person might not have been able to afford a place of burial, probably wouldn't have. Certainly Jesus would not be able to afford a grave without the intervention of Joseph. Most people borrowed a grave for their loved ones and they let their body decompose and then later they would come, wouldn't want to do this, but later they would come and, and sweep them up and put them into a box. Not Jesus. He's laid in a new grave where no death had been seen. In Acts 13, when Paul is preaching, he offers a contrast between David and Jesus. David, who died and decayed, with Jesus, on the other hand, was raised. And he intentionally points out that he never saw corruption. He never decayed. He wasn't ever around decay because he was laid in a brand new tomb. According to John 19, Joseph received help at the tomb to prepare the body. I love this part. Who shows up to help him out? But good old Nicodemus. 
Nicodemus, he's a teacher who came to Jesus by night in John 3. And remember, he's the one who, who Jesus taught him about being born again. That's the only way to get in the kingdom of heaven. What have we heard from Nicodemus since John chapter 3? Nothing. And that's early on in Jesus's ministry. And who does God bring to show up to prepare? He brings Nicodemus to help Joseph. And there the two of them put a massive amount of incredibly expensive spices as they wrapped the body of Jesus and laid down the spices. I love the picture of Jesus on one moment fully abandoned. His grave was set with the wicked. And then just moments later, seemingly out of nowhere, he's buried like a king. So one of the ways that we grow in our faith is we serve the body of Christ. Yeah, we won't serve it in the same way that Nicodemus and Joseph served it, but you can still care for the body of Christ today. It's no accident that the image used to describe the church across the New Testament is none other than the image of the church as the body of Christ. I gave you some passages in, in an appendix that you can see that. Maybe you're here, and the truth be told, you're a little bit on the outside. You would say you have faith in Jesus, trust him alone for your salvation, but you really aren't serving in any active manner. Let me encourage you. Follow the example of Joseph and Nicodemus. Take the next step and serve the body of Christ. Find a place to serve and begin serving. Don't wait for your faith to get strong enough before you serve. As you serve, he will supply faith. It definitely had to be the case for Joseph and Nicodemus. And please don't think that those who appear to be more connected and have it all taken care of, that they have it. Thank God that, that Nicodemus and Joseph did not do that. Those who were more connected and typically with Jesus, where were they? They had abandoned him. The greatest privilege we will ever have on this earth is to serve the body of Christ. All right, next point. I told you this ordering is just way off. To be the power of God to create faith and obedience. Again, Verse 54, all the way through verse 7. It was a day of preparation. The Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed. And they saw the tomb and saw his body, uh, how his body was laid. They returned and prepared spices and ointments. And on the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking those spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, the son of man must be delivered in the hands of sinful men and crucified on the third day. He'll rise. And so it's Friday, and the Sabbath began at sundown. Joseph and Nicodemus, those are men on the clock. 
and so are the women. Joseph and Nicodemus, they've got to stop this work with a dead body before sundown, or they would be rendered unclean for the Sabbath. The women, not knowing uh, the, the location, uh, no, sorry, now knowing the location of the grave, they want to return early um, Sunday. And so to do that, they had to go ahead and prepare the spices then. They couldn't do it on Sabbath, so they had to go ahead before sundown there on Friday and get these prepared. See, this is why God used the women there. There's no way a man would have thought ahead of time to get that done. Again, just wonder at the amazing power of God to create almost out of nowhere faith and obedience. I mean, you've got the women doing all this. You've got Joseph, who's Joseph, and Nicodemus, where you've been, bro. And where are all the followers? Crickets. That's what we've heard out of them. Crickets. The key to understanding this passage is put away the modern lens for just a second and recognize the difference between the role of women then and now. Whereas now, right now, we have four out of nine of our Supreme Court justices are women. At the time that this passage was written, a woman could not even give testimony in a public hearing. That's a stark difference. Can't even be a witness. And now almost half of our Supreme Court justices are women. So who does God use to be the first witness to the resurrection? Women. I'm telling you, the point here is he creates faith and obedience. While we want to read this passage and we want to understand it as elevating the status of women, I'll be honest with you, though I know that preaches really well today, that's really not the main thrust of this passage. Instead, the natural read of the passage is that God will use those who are considered the lowest to accomplish his purposes. We are supposed to be a surprise that it's the women who get all of this news as the first witnesses to the resurrection, uh, as we are surprised that the caretaker of our Lord would come out of the Sanhedrin. No way that's happening. That's supposed to be our response. But how fitting of God to have women carrying out the news of the resurrection and carrying it to who? The men. Again, recall the garden. It was the woman who brought the fruit of sin to man. Would it not be just like God to now have the woman bringing or the women bringing the good news to who? To the men. But lest we add to them more faith and courage than they deserve, any more than we added to Joseph more courage than he deserved, Let's remember these women did not go to that grave seeking a resurrection. They came to anoint a dead body. The angels point this out by asking a loveless question. This is how the angel says it to Jesus, uh, to, uh, to the folks in Jesus's uh, tomb. Such a funny question. It's as if he's saying, um, hey, you know what? Jesus is alive. You are alive. Do you go walking around in tombs? Okay, then why are you looking for Jesus who's alive walking around in a tomb? He's not here. Of course he's not is the thrust of this question. I love it. Of course he's not. And I love how the angel grounds the claim. Of course he's not. Why do you say of course he's not? Because he told you. 
He told you. What is he grounded in? He grounds it in Scripture. He points the women to the multiple places in the Word of God to show that it's happened just like Jesus has happened. I love that the angel even remembers where. Don't you remember y'all are up in Galilee? In verses 6 and 7, they are asked to remember the words of Jesus. We looked at those passages earlier. For example, out of Luke 9. Again, the reversal from the scene in the Garden of Eden compared to the Garden of the Tomb, it's pretty neat. Remember in the original uh, garden, the Garden of Eden, it was what? Well, it was a fallen angel who said to the woman, did God really say? And then he twisted the word of God to cause her faith to stumble. And now, almost in a full reversal, the women are greeted by a true angel of God. He doesn't ask, did God really say? But instead declares, remember what God said. Let us take note, the good news will always come from the scriptures. If there's a takeaway for the church, I think it is that God doesn't need spectacular, acceptable messengers. He doesn't need strategies or tools that the culture accepts. He just needs the message to be faithfully delivered. God knew that having women as the first witnesses would cause major difficulty in, in the believability of the message. He knew it would make the truth of the resurrection more difficult to believe. But God knew that faith and obedience must be created from scratch. And if he's going to create it from scratch, then can't he define his own ingredients? Point four, the power of God to raise new life. Verse five. As they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. The dead body of Jesus proved that Jesus was indeed able to bear our guilt as he was able to die. The words he has risen proves that he was able to overcome death and therefore follow the logic, overcome sin. Death was the ultimate penalty for our treason against God. The resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate reversal of the fall. The fact that we can and will die, it stands as evidence that we are diagnosed as sinners. So here's how to think about it. Imagine the most serious traumatic diagnosis you can think of. And imagine the doctor walks in and says, that's you. We know it, it's you. And then the doctor says, but you're never going to experience any of that. Any of the stuff that you think comes with that, that'll never touch you. Folks, that's exactly what the gospel tells us. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul quotes from the prophet of Isaiah and he says, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? Death will come for us. It will diagnose us. But for those who are in Christ, it cannot defeat us. Jesus was put into a new grave because he was the first one to rise over death. If his death was evidence that he owned our sin, his resurrection is evidence that we share in new life. What happened to Jesus will happen to us. Yes, 
we may face death, but at some point we will be given a new body like his that will never die again. Point two, C, the power of God to create faith and obedience. And they remembered his word, verses, verse eight of 24, chapter 24. In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the leaven and all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James and the other women and them who told them these things to the apostles. But these words seemed like an idle tale. They did not believe them. But Peter rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. So here again, we see God creating ex nihilio, faith and obedience. They remembered his words. That's how salvation happens. When lost sinners see and behold the treasure of the word of God. Verse 10 tells us explicitly that it was the testimony of the women that gave the news to the apostles. What a picture. For the rest of their lives, as the apostles told the story of the resurrection, each had to admit that they were completely absent. And where do they get their report? From the women. Luke is so honest about the reaction to the disciples. They heard the words. And they disbelieved them. Peter was so surprised that he ran all the way to the tomb. He's got to see it himself. But here we don't get affirmation or belief. Instead, he's still wondering. He's still marveling. If you were to ask me, what is the strongest argument that the resurrection of Jesus really happened? I don't hesitate. I know exactly what I'm telling you. It's the future faith of the disciples, of the apostles. All you got to do is read this account and then read what happens in the rest of the New Testament. When the apostles encounter the risen Lord, they go from fearful and confused to willing to die in just a moment of days. How else do you explain the complete lack of courage and faith, their inability to understand the word of God and their inability to believe God before they encounter the risen Jesus all the way to the gruesome deaths that every one of them endured experiencing the risen Jesus. Not only were they convinced, now so convinced that they could give a convincing message as they preached it, and not only were they convinced that their message was worth dying for, but I think this is the major point. It changed their view of death. The resurrection radically changed how they viewed death. After seeing the resurrected Jesus, the fear of death had lost its sting. And these men who lived very fearful of death before Watch the rest of the New Testament. Read how these men suffered and died. Some of them skinned alive, burned alive, speared to death, beheaded, crucified upside down. How do you explain that? It's because death had lost its sting. They encountered the resurrected Lord. Jesus 
is our hope in life. He's our hope in death. I read an article this week about a young man who died recently. Evidently, he was rich and evidently famous. And sadly, he was very troubled. His life, as told in this article, gave no evidence whatsoever of walking with Jesus. Yet the, offer, the article offered multiple quotes of his loved ones who seemed certain about his present state now that he's dead. They seemed certain about where he was and his position. They said things like, I'm so glad he's finally at peace. Or I'm so glad that God can now take care of him. I know he's looking down on us. I know he's now looking out for us. These are quotes. Friends, these are tragic statements because they don't have the first shred of evidence to back up their claims. Their claims are massive and they have zero evidence to back them up. The scriptures talk a lot about death. And they talk a lot about judgment. They give us clear evidence to where we can put our hope and our faith. And it is in the risen Jesus. I pray that God would be kind to create in us and recreate in us a faith and obedience that he gave to these first followers of the resurrected Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you would ever dream up this incredible thing called the gospel and salvation. It really is completely absurd that God could ever die. It only happened because the Lord Jesus has owned our sin. Father, I just pray that you would instill in us true hope in this. Remind us that if you have done this, then surely you will take care of all the things that are on our minds and hearts. Remind us what matters most is that there is death and that there is judgment and that Christ alone is the one who can give us hope through it all. Father, I pray that you would do your work among your people. In your name we pray. Amen.